Well, thank you and good afternoon, brethren. It's great to be back out here once again. I've been looking forward to very much the opportunity always of uh, getting out here to San Diego and bring you greetings from brethren back in uh, Texas and the rest of the South, uh, the areas where I directly serve. Brethren, in the account in John's Gospel, in the, in the book of John, uh, chapter 4, we read a, about a, an incident where Jesus was going, uh, traveling uh, up through, uh, going through Samaria. He was, had been down in the area of Jerusalem and, and was going, uh, left Judea and departed to go again into Galilee. Uh, this is recorded here in John chapter 4 and verse 3. And the most direct route was to go through Samaria. And that was what he did. And he came to a particular city there. And uh, he was stay- He stopped there. And uh, the disciples went into the uh, little village to buy food. And he stayed there uh, at the well. And a woman of Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus asked her for a drink. And she was taken aback at that because normally the Jews had nothing whatsoever to do with the Samaritans and uh, would not uh, even think of speaking to a Samaritan. Uh, So when Jesus addressed the woman, she was taken aback and uh, they entered into a conversation as it describes here. And Jesus began to talk to her about the water that he had. He said, you know, uh, as it brings on down in... uh, Verse 13, uh, Jesus told her, speaking of the water that she was preparing to uh, draw out of the well, He said, you know, whoever drinks of this water, the water that you're drawing out to give me, whoever drinks of this water is going to thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give shall never thirst. The water that I give shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. And the woman said, well, sir... I'd like for you to give me some of that water. I wouldn't have to come out here to the well and draw again. You know, that sounded pretty good to her. And Jesus said, well, I'll tell you what. Why don't you call your husband and uh, uh, tell him to come? Then I'll, I'll tell you all about this water. And the woman said, well, I'm not married. I don't have a husband. And Jesus said, well, now that's a good answer because you've actually had five. And the one you have now isn't your husband. Uh, So the woman at this point said, uh, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. You you seem to know more about me than what I had any intention of telling you. So she wanted to change the subject. You ever notice how sometimes, you know, people want to change the subject? She said, You know, since you're a prophet, I've got a Bible question. I've just been waiting to ask somebody. Let's not talk about husbands and wives anymore. Uh, Let's, uh, I've got a question I want to ask you. Our fathers, speaking of the Samaritans, worshipped in this mountain, Mount Gerizim, right there in the area of Samaria. And the, uh, the uh, Samaritans had built a temple there, which the Jews had destroyed at an earlier time uh, under uh, uh, the Maccabees. And uh, uh, this area, though, of the ruins of the Samaritan temple in Mount Gerizim was still the place where the Samaritans gathered. She said, our fathers worshipped in this mountain. Now, you say, you Jews, that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to go to worship. You say that Jerusalem is the place, and our fathers worshipped here. Now, where's the right place? 
And Jesus said unto her, Woman, believe me now, the hour comes when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet in Jerusalem worship the Father. The time was coming, of course, when the Romans would invade, when the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed and the Jews would be dispersed and the temple mount in Jerusalem would no longer be accessible. There would come a time, Jesus said, when the either of these geographical locations will simply no longer be available. Then he proceeded to tell her, verse 22, You worship, you know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. So he made very plain uh, that there was a clear distinction between the Jews and the Samaritans, and that the Jews had been used of God to preserve the truth, to preserve the Bible, to preserve the knowledge of who the true God was, and the Samaritans did not have that. But then he proceeded to tell her, verse 23, The hour comes and now is. When the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeks such to worship Him. God is spirit. And they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. What did Jesus mean by that statement? What did He mean to worship the Father in spirit and in truth? How do you worship in spirit and in truth? You know, the Jews of Jesus' day and the Samaritans as well thought that they understood what worship was about. They disagreed between themselves in terms of the proper mode and form of worship. But they went through certain actions and they came uh, to the places of their respective temples. And they went through certain ceremonies and they went through certain customs and practices. And they had disagreements among and between themselves But each of them thought they understood what worship was all about. And Jesus explained to the woman that the argument about the geographical location is though there's only one spot where you can come and worship God. But that missed the point. The true worshipers, the true worshipers of the true God must worship Him in spirit and in truth. That's an important concept to understand. Notice back in the book of Joshua. We'll go back to Joshua chapter 24. The book of Joshua, of course, tells the story of Joshua leading the children of Israel across the Jordan River and into the land that God had promised. And it tells the story of their settlement of the land, the six years that they spent subduing the land, and then they entered into rest at the beginning of the, uh, the seventh year. And that uh, is made plain as you go through uh, there in the book of Joshua. And the land was divided up among the tribes uh, as God would have it do. Now, we come to Joshua 24, which is written, is the story of, of an event right near the end of Joshua's life. And Joshua gathered all of the tribes of Israel to Shechem. And he called for the elders of Israel and for their heads and for their judges and their officers, and they presented themselves there before God. And Joshua said unto all of the people, Thus says the eternal God of of Israel, Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the river, the other side of the Euphrates, 
uh, as it's properly rendered. And even Terah, the father of Abraham, the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. So there was a time when the ancestors of Israel did not serve the true God. Abraham's family, beyond the Euphrates, had not worshipped the true God. Not for several generations. Abraham was taken away from his family, away from his kindred, away from the other side of the Euphrates, and brought to the land of Canaan. And he was brought there to enter into a relationship with God. He was entered, brought there to enter into a covenant relationship. That would be the basis of an inheritance he would receive or that actually his descendants would, in, would receive. So Joshua begins to rehearse this and how Jacob and his children had finally gone down to Egypt and Moses and Aaron were sent and God plagued Egypt. And uh, verse 6, I brought your fathers out of Egypt and you came uh, unto the sea. The Egyptians pursued after your fathers with chariots and horsemen unto the Red Sea. And they cried unto the Lord and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians. And Israel was brought across, and the Egyptians were swallowed up in the sea. Verse 8, I brought you into the land of the Amorites, and I gave them into your hand. And then in verse 9, Balak, the king of Moab, he arose and warred against Israel, and he sent and he called Balaam to come and to pronounce a curse. But God would not honor that. So, verse 11, you came over the Jordan, and you came to Jericho. And God delivered all of these various tribes of the Canaanites into the hand of Israel. So now he told them in verse 13, I've given you a land for which you did not labor, and cities that you didn't build, vineyards and olive, and olive yards that you didn't plant. Now, verse 14, here's the point. God says, look, I have worked in your lives beginning with Abraham, and I worked through, the, through his descendants, and I brought all of these circumstances down to bring you here, to bring you into a land that you didn't earn, you didn't build it up, it was here waiting for you. Olive trees were planted, vineyards were planted, houses were built, cities were laid out. All of these things were here, and I've given it to you. Now, therefore, verse 14, Joshua says, Fear the eternal. Fear, reverence, stand in awe of the eternal and serve him in sincerity and in truth. And put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the Euphrates and in Egypt and serve you the eternal. So Joshua called them here at the conclusion of his life or just prior to that short time uh, as he reached the end of his career. And he laid things out, and it was very apparent from what Joshua told them, that though Israel had come out of Egypt, all of Egypt hadn't come out of Israel. They had the gods of the Egyptians they were worshiping, and they had gods from the other side of the Euphrates that uh, had been ancestral gods uh, that uh, some of them clung on to. They had all sorts of ideas. Joshua rehearses that the true God, the living God, the Creator God, has worked through your ancestors, bringing all the way down to you here today, and He's given you all of this. Now, what you need to do, Joshua told them, is you need to reverence the Eternal. You need to stand in deep awe and reverence of Him, and you need to serve Him in sincerity and truth. And if you do that, you're going to put away the idols. Well, the people, of course, answered, oh, yes, all the Lord said, we'll do. 
you know, they were quick to volunteer, sort of like putting a volunteer list out. I've noticed that sometimes over the years at church. I mean, you can put out a volunteer list and you can get volunteers. Now, always getting everything to follow through is not the same thing as getting names on a list, you know. And uh, uh, people were quick to volunteer. They were quick. Oh, yes, all the Lord has said we'll do. We're going to get rid of all those idols. Yes, sir, we're going to do it tomorrow. Joshua told them the same thing that Jesus told the woman at the well in Samaria. You see, it was not a new concept that you're to worship God in spirit and in truth or worship Him in sincerity and in truth. In effect, you're to worship God with your heart and with your head. You are to worship Him from the inside. You're to worship Him with the heart, in, with the inner spirit, with, the, with deep sincerity. You're to worship God with your heart, and you're to worship Him with your head. You're to worship Him in truth. You're to worship Him in accordance with the, the pattern that He has set. Now let's notice this matter. Uh, let's first understand a little bit of what it means to worship God in truth. And then let's see what it means to worship God in spirit. Let's examine this a little more closely because Jesus Christ said that this is what is necessary to be a true worshiper. Down through time, there have been all sorts of people who have paid lip service to the true God. All sorts of people who have called themselves the people of God. The children of Israel in the days of Joshua called themselves God's people. And they paid lip service to the God of Israel, Yahweh. Oh, yes, we're going to serve the Lord. You remember back in uh, the book of Exodus, after Moses had, uh, or after God had given the Ten Commandments uh, there, and Moses had then left to go up into the mountain. And he spent 40 days in the mountain communing with God and receiving there uh, the two tablets of stone on which the commandments were written with the finger of God. Now, in this 40 days, a lot of things were happening at the bottom of the mountain. Days went by. Weeks went by. We don't know exactly how long, but evidently most of this 40 days had elapsed. And you see, we know that Moses was in the mountain 40 days. Israel didn't know how long he was going to be gone. They evidently didn't expect the trip to take all that long. And... uh, You know, days went by, and a week passed, and two weeks passed, and three weeks passed. And they finally gathered together and came to Aaron and said, Look, as for this man Moses, the man that brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. You know, he's sort of old, and he's gone up the mountain. He may have had a heart attack. We we don't know. He's gone. He hadn't come back. Now, notice the way they said it. As for this man Moses, the man that brought us out of the land of Egypt, because that's what they were looking at. You see, Moses is this man, and he's gone. He's disappeared. We don't know where he is. So they said, we want you to make us some gods to go before us. We don't know what's happened to Moses, and we need something we can see. Make us gods. And Aaron made a golden calf. And then, after he made the golden calf, he called the people together and he said, Tomorrow is a feast unto Yahweh. Tomorrow is a feast unto the Eternal, to the God of Israel. Now, he had made the golden calf. They used God's name and they attached it to what they were doing. And, of course, Moses came back down the mount, I think, 
sort of interesting, you know, the way, the way it's said there when you read it uh, in Exodus. God told Moses, He said, Your people, your people, the ones that you brought out of Egypt, they've corrupted themselves. Sort of like, you know, Dad comes home and Mom meets him at the door and says, Guess what your son did today? Well, you know, maybe God wasn't, he wasn't anxious to claim them about that time. They certainly weren't showing themselves faithful to him as his people. Well, the point is, God's name was used. God's name has been attached to all sorts of worship. The people didn't say outwardly, oh, we're leaving God and we're going to serve Molech, or we're going to serve Baal, or we're going to serve Isis and Osiris. Oh no, no, we're, we're gonna serve Yahweh. Oh yes, we're going to, we're gonna serve God. We just sort of made this golden calf over there because we sort of thought that would, that would maybe help us sort of to worship God better. People try to concoct their own ideas about worship. Now can we worship God the way we think God ought to be worshiped? In John 18, Jesus Christ was on trial, as it describes here, before Pontius Pilate. He was brought in before Pilate, and the Jews wanted Pilate to try him because they wanted him put to death by Roman crucifixion, which they were not authorized to do. And so they wanted him executed by the Roman government. So Jesus was brought before Pilate, and Pilate, in verse 33 of John 18, entered into the judgment hall again, and he called Jesus, and he said unto him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, and he said, Are you saying this of yourself, or did somebody else tell you? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you unto me. What have you done? Jesus answered and he said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. If I were simply trying to raise up another kingdom, a competing government, something to compete against the Romans, I'd have an army out there. I'd have my followers and they'd be fighting with the Jews. That's not going on. My kingdom is not of this world. It's not of this age. Now is my kingdom not from hence. Pilate Ask him, he said, well, are you a king then? You know, Pilate wasn't quite sure what Jesus was getting at. And, Pilate, and Jesus said unto him, you say that I'm a king. To this end was I born, and for this end, came, this cause, came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said unto him, what is truth? Now, you know, Pilate would fit right in in modern intellectual circles because in reality, modern intellectual circles are not all that modern. They've gotten uh, their modern intellectualism from the ancient Greeks and Romans. They got it from the same place Pilate got it. And Paul didn't have a very complimentary description of some of these ancient Greek and Roman intellectuals. He says, professing themselves to be wise, they became as fools. Pilate said, what's truth? What is truth? Jesus said, I have come to bear witness unto the truth. I've come to point to the truth. Those who are of the truth 
hear my voice. They understand. What is truth? Well, Jesus had defined truth just a little earlier that evening. Recorded in John 17, 17 in his prayer to the Father. Jesus asked the Father about his disciples, made the request, John 17, 17, sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. The word of God is truth. Back in Psalm 119, we're told, speaking of the word of God, your word is true from the beginning. God's word is consistently, dependably true. Jesus made the statement when confronted with the temptation in the wilderness by Satan. Satan trying to get him to turn the loaves or to turn rocks into bread. Jesus said it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. God's word is the truth. If we're to live by every word of God, then we are to live by the truth. The truth of God, the word of God is to define and regulate and control our lives. Now, you know, as you look through the Bible, as well as looking, of course, at just the world around us, we find that people's lives are controlled by a variety of things, often the least of which is the truth, the Word of God. You know, ultimately, you come down, most people's lives are controlled by two or three things. One is they're controlled by what other people think. You can read of plenty of examples of that. One of the examples, one of the kings of, of uh, ancient Judah, Joash by name, as you go and read the story, if you remember, the, uh, you remember wicked Ahab and Jezebel, the king and queen of Israel. Uh, Ahab and Jezebel had a daughter, Athaliah, that married the son of, of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was the king of Judah, and he was a righteous king, but as you read the story, sort of a gullible fellow. You know, there are people who just, they, they really can't ever believe that somebody else is up to something very bad. They just uh, sort of always see the good in everybody. Well, Jehoshaphat was a little like that. He even saw the good in Ahab, and there wasn't much good to see. And uh, Ahab conned him into several things that got him in trouble. But Jehoshaphat was, would take correction and he would come back. He would try, but he made a serious mistake that had repercussions for uh, his nation in that he let his son marry Jezebel and Ahab's daughter. Well, his son lived after him a short time and died, and then his uh, grandson took the throne. And when the grandson died, Athaliah, the queen mother, decided she would, kill the, she would seize the throne, so she tried to destroy all, tried to kill all of her grandkids. You know, she was a real chip off the old block uh, from Jezebel was the block. Uh, and uh, she tried to kill all of her grandkids, and there was one little baby that was not killed. And his name was Joash. And his uh, one of his uh, uh, aunts took him and hid him. She was uh, uh, had married into the priestly family, and he was hidden in the temple and brought up there under the, the tutelage of the high priest. And when he was seven years old... Um, he was taken and brought into the temple, and, and the uh, high priest had, had uh, made the arrangements. And 
uh, Joash was brought into the temple and crowned. And when Athaliah came rushing into the temple, she heard all this commotion. She was taken out and executed. And Joash became king. Now what we find is that Joash did fine for a while. He did fine as long as that elderly high priest continued to live. He did fine as long as the priest continued to live. But when the priest died, then there was a problem. Because the uh, we're told, and uh, the account is given in Second Chronicles, Second Chronicles uh, uh, 24 and 20, Second uh, Chronicles 24. Jehoiada was the high priest, and we're told in Second Chronicles 24:17. After the death of Jehoiada came the princes of Judah, and they made obeisance to the king, and the king hearkened unto them. And they left the house of the Lord God of their fathers and served groves and idols. You see, what we're told is that Joash served God all the days of Jehoiada the priest. Joash was one of these individuals who was heavily influenced by the people around him. And when he was under the guidance of a strong, righteous leader, Joash did fine. Joash... If he had died before Jehoiada had, you would have thought, well, Joash was a good man. Uh, Joash uh, uh, did all these things, and you read uh, the account here in uh, in Second Chronicles 24 and uh, how they rebuilt and repaired the temple, and they did uh, all of these things. And uh, uh, yet we find that after Jehoiada's death, Joash was very quickly influenced to do the very opposite of everything Jehoiada had stood for. Joash wanted to be, he wanted to fit in. And he was heavily influenced by the people he was around. You can read of others. You know, one of the the excuses that Saul would trot out when he was confronted about a problem, uh, a mistake that he had made, first he would generally try to deny that he had done it and, and and make excuses. And when Samuel really pinned him down, He said, well, I feared the people. I feared the people. The people wanted to take uh, of the best of the oxen and sheep, and they wanted to offer it for a sacrifice. Saul was heavily influenced and led by what others around him thought. Now, you know, that's a pretty common trait of human nature. We're we're influenced by by other people around us. And there's some people who always look at things and, 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 and they just sort of look what everybody else is doing. They try to go along with the crowd and fit in. They're guided by the opinions of others. Now, there are other people who are a little different. They, uh, uh, some are guided by their, own, uh, by their own, primarily by their own emotions, their own feelings and impulses, whatever strikes them. And uh, they... Uh, you can go through and read uh, of individuals and all the things that uh, the different ones did, uh, motivated by basically their own impulses, their own uh, their own urge or impulse of the moment. And they got themselves in a lot of trouble. Now, Proverbs warns us about that. It says there's a way that seems right unto a man, but the ends are offer the ways of death. You know, when you when you depend on yourself, you know the Scripture admonishes us. To lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. And there, again, example after example of that. You can't afford to base your life on what other people think you ought to do. 
Nor can you afford to base your life on just what you feel like doing or simply what you analyze and calculate. You know, Jeroboam was made king uh, by Israel after the death of King Solomon. The ten tribes chose him as king. Prior to Solomon's death, the prophet of God had come to Jeroboam and had told him. Actually, Jeroboam had come out and he had on this new coat. And the prophet said, here, let me see your coat. And he proceeded to rip it into uh, into 12 pieces. Uh, I don't know about you, but I think if I'd have been Jeroboam, you know, sort of eyes got big. What, What are you doing to my new coat? And the prophet handed him ten of the pieces, and he said, God is going to give you ten of the tribes of Israel. He's going to save something back for the house of David because of David, because of Jerusalem. But he's going to give you ten. He's going to make you king. Then he told him that that was an absolute statement. Then he said, if you will walk in the ways of God, if you'll serve God the way David served God, he will establish your dynasty forever. All right, time went by. Jeroboam had to flee. Word of this must have gotten back to Solomon because all of a sudden Solomon was out looking for Jeroboam. Jeroboam fled to Egypt, waited down there till Solomon died, came back. Uh, The the, the nation of Israel split apart. The ten tribes said, we want Jeroboam as our king. He became the new king. Then he began to think and to analyze. And he said, you know, if things continue on, And the people are going up to Jerusalem for the festival every time. It's just a matter of time before they become nostalgic for the good old days. They're going to come up there and they're going to see Rehoboam and he'll, you know, give sort of the the opening night welcome there at the feast and everybody will be glad to see one another and, you know, he'll preside over things because it's in Jerusalem and he's the king there and he'll be welcoming everybody. And he was smart enough to know that, you know, the honeymoon doesn't last forever. When the nations first split, boy, Jeroboam was popular. Uh, His, you know, if there had been a Gallup poll back then, he'd have probably hit the 90% mark up in northern Israel. He was the man of the hour. But he was smart enough to know, you know, that's not going to last. It's just going to be a matter of time, and I'm going to make some unpopular decisions. and People are going to begin to gripe and grumble about the way I do things. And they won't have to be living under the way Rehoboam does things. You know, they'll just go up there and see him for a few days at the feast and they'll miss their friends and they'll begin to think about how nice it would be to all be back together. And then the more he began to think about it, he says, they're going to get rid of me. They'll kill me, they'll get rid of me, and the nation will return to Rehoboam. Now, you know, that makes good sense if you leave God out of the picture. If all you're looking at is on a human level, Jeroboam's reasoning made sense. He was a very uh, analytical individual, had the ability to analyze and to look at things. He was what we, would, he, what we would term realistic. He looked at things that way. But you see, that really wasn't realistic because the most real thing there is, is God. And God was left out of Jeroboam's equation. So Jeroboam called everybody together and he said, look, we're going to make, you know, we've, we've got, got some new truth. Uh, we, you don't have to go to Jerusalem. See, you don't have to go to Jerusalem for the feast. Those of you live up in the north, you can go to Bethel. You can go to Dan and down in the south, you can go to Bethel. 
And we've got a couple of golden calves here. Remember this? You, you remember the golden calves? That's what that's your God that brought you out of Egypt? You know, it's amazing how you can rewrite history and convince people. You know, there must have been some there that thought, wait a minute, golden calf brought us out of Egypt? Yeah, seems like I remember hearing something about a golden calf one time that they had. Oh, yeah, they had one. You know, Aaron, he was the high priest. He made it. Oh, yeah. So you sort of rewrite history around. We've got the two golden calves. These are your gods that brought you out of Egypt. We'll have two places. You can go to the church of your choice, uh, Dan or Bethel. And then he hired new priests. Priests that would preach what he paid them to preach. Priests of the lowest of the people, we're told. Anybody needed a job, boy, Jeroboam would give you a job. All you had to do was read the script. People said, oh, yeah, I can, I can do that. Well, if you were willing to, to do it that way. So Jeroboam, then he changed the feast. He said, instead of going in the seventh month, let's do it in the eighth month. Jeroboam came up with a strategy and a plan that had as its purpose to perpetuate his dynasty. Because the way he rationalized it through, if he let the people continue to go to Jerusalem year after year for all the festivals, it was just a matter of time till he'd lose it all. That was the way he analyzed it. You see, Jeroboam followed logic. Some people follow emotion. Some people follow logic. Some people just follow other people. You can't afford to do any of those things. If you follow other people, what are they following? Well, they may be following their own ideas or their own emotions or maybe even their own logic. Jeroboam's logic was fine, but he left the most important part of the equation out. You know, logic, if you leave, if you don't, if your logic isn't based on the truth, logic just becomes the correct way of being wrong. Your reasoning can be impeccable, but you just left the most important part of the equation out. Jeroboam left God out of the equation. You see, man's not to live by bread alone. Man's not to live simply based on physical things, human emotions, logic, what other people think. Those things will mess you up. We're to live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You know, we can go on through and we can look at uh, uh, so many different things that, uh, uh, that tie in about, about God's truth. The ultimate of worshiping God in truth is worshiping God according to the pattern that He sets. There's an interesting account given back in 2 Kings chapter 16. In 2 Kings 16, we read the story of King Ahaz. Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah, and Ahaz was a wicked king. He was a man who was not interested in doing what God said. He became king, and uh, within a short time, he began to run into trouble. Uh, the uh, king of, of Syria... Uh, Along and the king of Israel entered into an alliance against Judah. And uh, they came down and besieged Ahaz. And uh, then uh, the Syrians managed uh, to come down and capture the port of Elot, which is right there at the uh, northern top of the Gulf of Aqaba, the, uh, the northern extension of the Red Sea. And that was the major port 
that uh, Judah had, and, and, and Syria managed to capture a lot, and Syria and Israel together had besieged uh, Ahaz there, had not been able to conquer Jerusalem, but they had done a lot of damage. And Ahaz, instead of going to God, as Isaiah the prophet told him he should do, Ahaz figured the solution was to bribe the Assyrians. So he sent a gift of, of money, of wealth, uh, to Tiglath-Pileser, the uh, king of Assyria. And he said, look, I'll be your tributary, I'll be your servant. Uh, I would like for you to please come up and fight against Damascus. They have come down and they've given me grief. And, and please, you know, well, Tiglath-Pileser was glad for an excuse to just come in and conquer more territory. So he did. And he came in, and, and after he did... In verse 10 of 2 Kings 16, Ahaz went up to Damascus to meet with him. Now notice in verse 10, he saw an altar that was at Damascus. And King Ahaz sent to Urijah the priest the fashion of the altar and the pattern of it according to all the workmanship thereof. And Urijah the priest built an altar according to all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. Got it ready for him to come back. And you find as you read on down through the account that the altar that had been in the temple, the brazen altar there uh, in the temple was moved. They, they sort of stuck that over in a corner, and the new altar was put there. Ahaz had gone to Damascus, and he looked at the pagan altar, the altar that the people of Damascus had used to worship their false gods. And Ahaz liked the looks of that altar. He thought, you know, that's a lot nicer altar than the one we've got in Jerusalem. You know, that's big, nice, fancy, looks really good. I wish we had one like that. So he had somebody to make a pattern based on that altar. Now, the, uh, that's, sort of a, that's sort of an interesting thing. You know, back uh, several years ago, about seven or eight years ago, there were some folks that were talking about how we needed a new paradigm. Uh, some of you may remember that. Now, you know, that's interesting. Uh, Ahaz got a new paradigm here. Uh, in, in the literal sense. If you look that word up, paradigm, our English word paradigm comes from, is, is, uh, is a French word. That's why we pronounce it that way. Uh, it's a French word that refers to a pattern. Uh, but the French word actually comes from, from the Greek paradigma. Well, if you go back and look in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you find that what Ahaz got was he got his paradigma from Damascus. You see, God had given the pattern for the altar. If you go back to Exodus uh, chapter uh, 25, you find that God told Moses, God gave Moses the pattern of the tabernacle and all of the vessels. The pattern originated with God. The pattern of the altar in the tabernacle and in the temple had originated with God. Ahaz went and he found a new pattern. He got his from Damascus. And he said, we need to get rid of that old one. That doesn't sort of, that just, you know, not really with it. We, we need this new one. And so he had one constructed. Now, if you go on through the story, you find later on after he died, his son Hezekiah began to repair and refurbish the temple. And he took all the things that, Hezek, that Ahaz had done and had them chopped to pieces and thrown in the brook Kidron, thrown in the trash heap down there. And he restored the temple. But you see, to worship God in truth means to worship Him according to the pattern that He set. God was very explicit to Moses that you're to make everything according to the pattern that I showed you in the mount. 
Paul elaborates on that in the book of Hebrews, chapters 8, 9, and 10, and quotes that statement that Moses was told to make all things according to the pattern. And then Paul explains their spiritual ramifications of that, that the physical pattern of all the items in the tabernacle pointed toward the fulfillment of the plan and the purpose of God and the ministry of Jesus Christ. You see, God's pattern, the Sabbath, the holy days, the whole pattern of worship points us toward the plan of God. To worship God in truth is to worship Him in accordance with His Word. It is to worship Him in accordance with the pattern that He has set. It's not acceptable worship to go and to carve out your own pattern or to look over and see what the Syrians are doing or what this one is doing or that one is doing and think, well, that's sort of a nice idea. Yeah, you know, that sort of looks good. I think I like that. That's pretty. That's nice. We'll just take it and, oh, we won't call it by its pagan name anymore. We'll call it by the name of Christ. You know, we won't call it Saturnalia. We'll call it Christmas. We'll call it, you know, whatever it may be. You and I can't render acceptable worship to God except for worship based on the pattern that God has set. We're to worship Him in truth which means our worship is to be predicated on the Word of God. Man is not to live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Paul told uh, some of those in Asia that he, had, uh, that he had taught personally. He said, I have not neglected to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. I've explained to you what God says. And that's crucial. God's will is knowable because God has chosen to reveal it. The Bible contains the revealed Word of God. God's Word is intended to clean us up. Peter talks about it in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10. Peter talks about the salvation, which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand of the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Spirit sent down from heaven. Which things the angels desire to look into. You know, the truth of God revealed by God to the prophets written down in the Old Testament prophets that pointed to a time beyond their day, things that they were trying to fully understand. Isaiah wrote prophecies that he himself struggled to understand the full implications of. Daniel wrote prophecies that he struggled to understand the implications of. And some things he was simply told, this is sealed up until the time of the end. But as we come on, Paul, uh, Peter says here, verse 13, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. You know, get ready in your thinking. Be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance. Don't be the way you used to be when you didn't know any better. Don't fashion yourselves. Don't fit in and conform to 
the way you used to do things before you didn't know better. Verse 15, But as He which has called you is holy, so be you holy in all manner of conduct, because it is written, Be you holy, for I am holy. That's a direct quotation out of Leviticus 11 and other places in the book of Leviticus, that theme running through Leviticus, that theme of holiness. Peter was quoting, quoting from the law. Be you holy, for I am holy. God's purpose and destiny is that we might become like Him. And so we're no longer to follow the old patterns in our lives. So he goes on to say, If you call on the Father, verse 17, who without respect of persons judges according to every man's works, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear, in reverence. For as much as you know, you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as a lamb without blemish, without spot, who truly was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Who, do, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God, seeing, verse 22, you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned, unpretended love of the brethren. See that you love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born or being begotten again. Not of corruptible seed, as we were begotten the first time as a human being, but rather of incorruptible seed, of incorruptible by the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. All flesh is as grass, it's temporary. The glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower fails. But the Word of the Lord endures forever. God's Word is truth. Truth is permanent. Truth is eternal. We are to live our lives by the truth. We are to worship God in truth. We are purified in our thinking by obeying the truth through the Spirit. That's what Peter explains in verse 22. Obeying the truth, putting it into practice. Letting our lives be guided by the truth of God. If God says it, We act on it. May not understand fully why. It may go contrary to the things you feel or to the expectations of others. But when you become convicted of the truth, you need to act on it because it's the truth. You know, many of us have very vivid memories. I, I guess one of my most vivid memories is the first Christmas I did not keep. And, you know, it came down as much as I desired to please my family. As much as I desired to please my mother and father, as much as I desired to please them, I saw what the Bible said. What God explained back in Deuteronomy, that don't look around at all these nations and say, how did those nations serve their gods? Even so will we do to the eternal our God for all the things which God hates. They did to their gods. And so, you know, sometimes you have to stand out. Not because you're trying to be contrary, not because you want to hurt somebody, but because the truth must guide us. So we're to worship God in truth, but 
That's not all there is. Understand something. Worship in truth without worship in spirit simply produces legalism. Worship, attempts to worship in spirit without regard to worship in truth simply produces emotionalism. Now, let's, let's look on. You know, the Pharisees were so focused on worshiping in truth that they had the form, but they left out the substance. Truth gives form. It gives shape. It gives definition. But we're not only to worship God in truth, following the pattern that He set. You can go through the outward motions. You can obey in the outward manner, the outward letter, the commandments. And you should. But if all you're doing is going through the motions, if there's not reality and substance to it, then it becomes empty. It becomes form without substance. Form and substance are both vitally important. Worshiping God in spirit has to do with a relationship with God. A relationship from the heart. If you go back to 1 John chapter 3, in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 16, John writes, Hereby perceive we the love of God, because He laid down His life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. We perceive the love of God. You see, John explains a little further in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 19. We love Him because He first loved us. We love Him because He first loved us. Herein we perceive the love of God because He laid down His life for us. As He explains in 1 John 4 verse 10, Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. How do we learn to love? We learn to love by being loved. A little baby comes into the world. The first thing that a little baby is capable of being taught is love. First thing a child is capable of learning from his parents, first lesson, is, is love. Because you see, that little baby comes and, and is, is taken and held and cuddled and and, and nursed and, and kissed and, and caressed and loved and cherished by his mother, taken and loved and, and cuddled and held, cherished by his father. And that little child begins to learn how to love. Every parent thinks back with fond memories as you remember the first time your, your little child just sort of, you know, little baby's eyes just sort of lit up when he saw you, recognized you, remembering when, you know, reached out his little arms and wanted to, you know, wanted you to hold him. That little child learned to love because he was loved. Now, we love God because he first loved us. We learn to respond to God in love. God took the initiative in establishing a relationship with us. A relationship 
That is, God is our Father and we're to be His children. And God extended His love. In fact, we're told in Romans, God commends His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God didn't look down and love you because you sort of measured up and you were good enough and you, he just, you were so good that He just had to sort of take you. God commended His love toward us while we were yet sinners. And, you know, Paul explains in Romans, he says, you know, sometimes there, there are a few people who maybe for a good man would be willing to give their lives. You know, not a whole lot of people, but there's some who, who would take the place and, and would be willing to give their life for someone that they viewed as good. Christ didn't do that. He didn't give His life for you and for me because He thought we were so good. God commended His love toward us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. Hereby we perceive the love of God. We're given insight and perception about how much God loves us in that He gave His only begotten Son. And you see, we love Him because He first loved us. We learn how to love and how to relate in love. We understand and come to uh, grasp what love is. You know, there are people who view God's love as something they have to earn. And they make a fatal mistake and they lock themselves under certain attitudes that, that block a relationship with God. Because you see, what they know deep down is that they don't fully measure up. And if God's love is something that has to be earned, then you and I are both in a lot of trouble. The reality is God freely bestows and extends His love. You and I then are called upon to respond to that love. But God freely gives it, freely extends it. The love of God, really grasping and understanding the love of God, truly accepting the love of God, will change and transform our lives. And it is the beginning of a relationship with God. We read of Abraham. And we're told of Abraham. James makes the reference back in James 2. Abraham was called the friend of God. Now that's a relationship. Abraham was called the friend of God. He's God's friend. You read later about King David. And we're told of King David. God said, I'm going to raise up a man over Israel, a man after my own heart. David was a man after God's own heart. Now you talk about a relationship. Remember back in, in Daniel chapter 10, Daniel had been praying and, and seeking an answer. And finally an angel came and appeared to Daniel. You notice the way he greeted Daniel there in Daniel 10, 19? He said, O man, greatly beloved. How would you like to have an angel greet you and tell you, O man, O woman, greatly beloved. You're really highly thought of where I come from. I really hear some good things about you at the throne of God, you are greatly beloved. Abraham, David, Daniel, many, many others. These are individuals who had a relationship with God. They didn't just go through the motions of worship. They didn't just go through the 
through rituals and empty outward actions and forms, they had a relationship with their Creator. It was a relationship based on love. You know, Daniel, you read in, in the book of Daniel of one of the experiences that Daniel had. Daniel was a man who was very conscientious in the performance of his duties, and he was a very capable individual. And there, this promoted jealousy from some of the others, and they wanted to get Daniel in trouble with the king. And so they came to Darius, and they said, we want you to make a decree that for the next 30 days, we, we think, you know, you're really wonderful, uh, King Darius, and we think for the next 30 days nobody ought to pray to any god except you. And Darius let himself be talked into signing such a stupid decree as that. Well, then we're told these same fellows, they went to spy on Daniel because they knew. they could. The only thing they could get on Daniel was something pertaining to God. They knew he was honest. They knew that they couldn't bribe him. They knew he wasn't corrupt. And we're told that when Daniel knew that the decree was signed, Daniel knew the decree was signed, that he went into his place. This is described back in Daniel chapter 6. He went into his place in his house, Daniel 6 verse 10. The windows being opened in his chamber toward Jerusalem, he kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did before time. As he did before time. This wasn't a new habit for Daniel. This is how Daniel lived his life. Daniel had a relationship with God and there was nothing. There was no law. There was nothing that was going to stop Daniel from having a relationship with his God whom he loved. And Daniel was a man greatly beloved. Daniel cultivated that relationship with God. Daniel went to God because Daniel loved God. And what did he do? We're told he prayed and he gave thanks. Daniel was appreciative and thankful. And even in the midst of, of all these problems and here's all this pressure and oh no, what's Daniel going to do? Daniel was going to keep doing what he had always done. Daniel knew his God. He didn't simply know about Him. Daniel knew God and Daniel looked forward to and anticipated spending time with his God, with his Father, with his Creator. And Daniel came before God just like he always did. And God looked down on Daniel, and Daniel was a man greatly beloved. Daniel had a relationship with God. To worship God in spirit is to worship Him from the heart. To worship Him with, from the heart. You and I can have a relationship with our God. Do we really understand what that entails? I remember a picture that was a very... Very descriptive or memorable picture. It was made back in the early 1960s, I guess, uh, probably uh, somewhere maybe in the early part of 1963. It was back when John F. Kennedy was president. And President Kennedy was sitting at his desk, and he was surrounded by uh, several men of high importance, uh, individuals of, of prominence in the government, and they are talking. They've got some sort of meeting going on. But as you look at President Kennedy's desk, his desk was open in the middle, if you remember. It had the, the, uh, the uh, sides, but the open part was, or the middle part was open. 
And what caught your eye in the picture was not just the president, it wasn't just the important men that were standing there talking to him. It was the fact that underneath the desk was a little two-year-old boy. That was his son. Now, you know, if you were a very wealthy individual, if you were a senator, a congressman, or a governor, you might be able to call up the White House and make an appointment with the president. Even if you were an important individual, you didn't just come charging on into the White House, just open the door and come right on in. You came up there and you stopped at the secretary's desk out in front and you said, you know, I'm here to see the president. And she would buzz the president and, and yes, you know, send Governor so-and-so in. All of these men had come into the office by appointment. But here was a little kid. And he just came boldly trotting down the stairs and walking down the hallway and right on through the open door, came in and right under the desk. No Secret Service agent stopped him. No policeman stopped him and asked to see his ID. Nobody checked him and said, well, now, wait a minute, do you have an appointment? You see, he didn't have to have an appointment. He didn't have to go through security clearance. He had access because he was a son. He was coming in to see his dad. He was coming in to his father. And so he just came toddling right on in. and came right on up there into the Oval Office and right under the president's desk. Brethren, the Apostle Paul tells us in the book of Hebrews that we're to come boldly before the throne of grace. We can come boldly before the throne of grace because we have a relationship with God, a relationship with our Father, and we can come just as boldly as that little two-year-old boy toddling right on into the Oval Office, coming to see his Father. To worship God in spirit is to have that kind of a relationship with God, that we're coming before our Father, the One who loves us, more than you and I can even imagine. Let's notice what David said back in Psalm 27. Psalm 27, David had a relationship with God. David worshipped God in spirit. He said in Psalm 27, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked, even my enemies and my foes, uh, came upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. Though a host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war should rise up against me, in this will I be confident. One thing have I desired of the Lord, David said. One thing have I desired, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. David said, this is what I desire. I desire to be with God always. Always. David worshipped God from the heart. He loved God. He responded to the love of God. He understood and grasped the love of God. In the time of my trouble, He'll hide me in, the, in His pavilion. In the secret of His tabernacle shall He hide me. He'll set me upon a rock. Now shall my head be lifted up above my enemies round about. He goes on to say in verse 10, when my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take me up. 
You know, your father and your mother, humanly speaking, that, that ought to be the last people on earth that would ever forsake you. You know, I, I, your father and mother love you and nourish you. They give you life. They, they nurture you. They bring you up. And David said, you know, even when my father and mother, if my father and mother were to forsake me, God would still take me up. God loves me more than any human being. He loves me more than even my own mother. My own father is capable of loving me. God would stick with me after they would leave me behind. You see, David had a grasp of the magnitude of God's love. You know, many of you are human parents. I have two sons. How quickly would you forsake those children? How quickly would you be to just turn your back and not care about them again. Well, David understood that far beyond our ability to love, when my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will take me up. He loves me even more. You see, our relationship, we're called into a relationship with God. He is our Father. We're His children. We're to worship God in spirit and in truth. To worship God in spirit and in truth is to worship God with the head and to worship Him from the heart. To worship Him according to the pattern that He set. To be guided by His Word and His instructions. But not simply to go through the motions. Not simply just to obey in a legalistic sense. But to do it from the heart. To build and to establish that relationship with God. You know, one of the primary purposes of prayer is to build and to establish a relationship with God. When you pray, you're coming to your Father. You're coming before Him to lay out your hopes and your dreams. You're coming to make, to, to, to ask Him for help for your needs. You're coming to, to praise Him and to glorify Him, to honor Him. You're coming in love. You're coming because you're excited to be coming in before your Father. We can come boldly to that throne of grace and find grace to help in time of need. We can come to God because we have a relationship with Him. A relationship that He initiated. He commended His love toward us while we were yet sinners. We love Him because He first loved us. Hereby we perceive His love because He laid down His life for us. He has shown the ultimate in terms of love. We are to respond to that. And if we respond to the love of God, it will flow out in terms of our relationship with other people. Because if we truly love God, we will love those whom God loves. And we will care about that which is important to God. And so our whole focus, our whole thinking is changed and transformed and we respond to God from the inside out. You know, we all have our problems and our hang-ups and we have this and that and all these, the, the various things that have shaped and molded us. You and I can go through life and we can find excuses to be the way we are and to remain that way. Or we can understand that our God, through His love, has made it possible for us to be changed and transformed from the inside out.
He gives us a pattern and he extends to us the love that makes it possible for us to change and to grow. Ultimately, it is the people who do know their God that shall be strong and do exploits. Daniel brings that out. For us to truly fulfill that calling and that purpose, for us to truly have the strength to do exploits, first and foremost, we must know our God. The Father seeks such to worship Him. Those that worship Him in spirit and in truth. Worshiping Him from the heart according to the pattern that He set. As we do that, as we walk hand in hand with our God, our Father, our elder brother who loved us and gave Himself for us, as we do that day by day, a relationship is deepened. A pattern is more completely and totally understood. Our lives are transformed and we go forward to accomplish the very purpose of our calling as we look forward to and anticipate the time when we as a part of the family of God will, as David said, dwell in the house of God forever.